Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. So we just finished our sermon series on the Holy Spirit. We call it Holy Ghost Stories. If you want to watch that, if you weren't here for that, it's online. You can watch it on YouTube or you can podcast it. And then we, we ended it off with an encounter service last Sunday night, which was just incredible, where we saw God just pour out across the congregation. We saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit accompanying with the gifts. Um, and my heart just awakens when we start seeing things that we've heard of in, in years past begin to happen for ourselves our own gift, our own legacy, and and for that we were so grateful. But we're starting a four-part sermon series today on our culture statement. A lot of organizations would have a vision statement, or a lot of churches have a vision statement and a mission statement. As a church here, we have a vision, mission, and we have a culture statement. We believe culture is the most important thing as a church that we should focus on, or how we individually operate, but how we operate collectively together. Christ says that you would know each that we're uh, disciples of him by the love that we have for one another. So he's talking about the culture that we sustain, grow in and through him. Uh, There's a great writer and a a great mind in regards to just organizational culture, and his name is uh, Dr. Sam Chand, and he advises a lot of businesses and a lot of churches, and he makes this statement. He says that a toxic culture will eat a healthy vision for breakfast every morning. And it's so true. Any, any one of us who have led something, that you've had this beautiful vision, this empowering vision, even in your own life, you've had a great vision, but then you need to partner it with something, right? And, and often we don't have the, 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 the words to put into place of what we're trying to do, but what we really are trying to do is we're trying to partner it with a culture where it can thrive, where it can, it can find its place and begin to grow and be, be fed and be watered and, and, and reach its full maturity. And so if we don't have a healthy culture in our own life, can I tell you, you're going to struggle to see the visions happen if you're not fostering that, that culture well. And, and furthermore, as a church, if we don't have a healthy culture, then everything that God has spoken over us as a church, everything that he's, he's told us we're to do and, and to do and achieve is going to be very hard for us. Um, and it's going to be slower than we want it to be. And so we say this, we say vision is our desired destination. Then culture is the vehicle that gets us there. Culture is the vehicle that gets us there. So if we were to put this in geographical terms, say our vision was Langley. I don't know why that would be, but let's just say it is. Um, I'm just going to always bag on Langley. We love Langley. Let's say it's Langley. What vehicle would we need to, do to, to, to create or build to get us to Langley? We just need a car, right? Nothing too fancy. Maybe a bus. There's enough of us. But if I said to you all of a sudden, actually, we need to get to Hawaii... Would that vision that got us, that culture that got us to Langley now get us to Hawaii? No, we need to rebuild our culture to sustain bigger vision. And so we're going to talk across the next four weeks what our vision points are in this church. We have a vision statement, a cult, sorry, our culture statement, and our culture points are this, remain helpful, remain humble, remain hopeful, and remain his. And so today we're going to talk about how to remain helpful. Who here likes helpful people? I love helpful people. Man, helpful people are my jam. I'm going to find helpful people a lot quicker than I want to find unhelpful people. But the problem is, there's more unhelpful people than there is helpful people. Right? It's like driving through Kelowna and trying to find a healthy food place that all you see is A&W and IHOP. <laughs> For my kids, that was like amazing. They were like, yeah, root beer. And Emma wasn't with us, so I gave them as much root beer as they wanted. I was like, drink, drink, drink. 
but it's so easy to point out what's going wrong with things. I really find it a struggle when I'm around people that think they have some sort of high intellect because they can point out everything that's going wrong. But we say all the time, anyone can find dirt. That's easy. It's everywhere. Show me somebody who can find gold. Show me someone who can find a precious jewel. Don't tell me, I can find dirt. That's not the issue here. It exists. Being helpful means you've actually got to put some effort into it. I don't mean fake helpfulness. Where it's like, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you and then you're off texting and you've forgotten what you're praying about. I remember I went through a season where God really convicted me with that and I had to write down in my phone. If I said I was going to pray for someone, I'd pull my phone out and write down their name and write what I was praying for. Because I was like, if I don't do this, not that I'm a bad person, but I'm going to forget and other things are going to get in the way and I'm not actively pursuing what I said I was going to do for them. And so being helpful requires you to actually position yourself, decide this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to remain helpful, not just to myself, but helpful to others. I'm going to remain helpful to the the call of God on my own life, as well as the call of God on others' life, as well as the call of God on our church and whatever he's doing in and through us collectively. And that doesn't mean that things don't go wrong, but there's two types of people in this world. Honestly, there is. Imagine there's a car, it loses control, and it ends up in a ditch. Two types of people arrive. The first person arrives looks at the car in the ditch, and will spend the next hour or two trying to figure out how the car got into the ditch. (laughs) Then the second person arrives, and he'll spend, or she'll spend, an hour and a half figuring out how to get the car out of the ditch. See the two different mindsets? Same situation, different mindsets. That's not to say we shouldn't reflect and debrief and figure out how not to make that same mistake again, but it's realising helpfulness knows to put things in the right order. You've got to put things in the right order. And when you take that into like the concept of preaching the gospel or bringing the good news or speaking the redemptive work of Christ, this is the picture I want to paint for you. This is how unhelpful I've seen many Christians. Imagine, this is the illustration of not knowing Jesus. You're at the crossing, at a road. The person next to you doesn't know Jesus. You, you know, they run, they step out across the road. They get hit by a car. They're on the ground. They're in trouble. Now, If that was the picture of everyone who doesn't know Christ right now on the ground in trouble, tell me why does the church spend so much of its time trying to explain to them why they got hit by the car instead of calling 911? Why do we do that? It doesn't make sense to me. Our job's to call 911, not tell the dying person, hey, you know what, you wouldn't be in this predicament if you didn't do A, B. Did you look left, right and left again? No, you didn't. And now you're here. What's your name? Do you know God loves you? They're like, I just want to live. (laughs) But this is what happens. We've got to remain... And this is not to say we shouldn't preach the gospel. You should just learn how to do it in the right order. Live it. Speak it in the right order. Be a witness for Jesus. And so we're going to look at a particular person in the Bible that I think is going to help us understand what helpfulness to oneself can look like in all different seasons. Now, I'm not going to touch on every season. I'm just going to touch on what I think are big seasons for him and what we can learn from them as individuals. Is that cool? I've labelled this person Mr. Helpful, just so you know. Mr. Helpful, also known as Joseph. Genesis 37, we're going to pick up his story here. Verse 5, it says, One night, Joseph, this is in the Old Testament, right? This is a long time ago. Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever ever told someone something and they hate you 
like something that God's given you? I had a dream. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain and suddenly my bundles stood up and all your bundles gathered together and they bowed down before mine. I'm like, how do you accept that type of information? <laughs> well, I feel like they responded like a lot of us would respond. They say, so you think you'll be our king? Do you? Do you actually think you'll reign over us? And they hated him even more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit earlier, uh, further on about this particular... He has another dream, but I find it interesting that uh, often two things, takes place, two things take place when we hate someone else's dream. And I know I'm not going to have a show of hands this morning, but I know for a fact everyone's been here when someone's excited, you know, a, 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 an atmosphere of excitement and their, their nature's just so positive and they've come and told you what God has said to them or they've just told you what they're passionate about and you don't like it. And you don't like it for a few reasons. And I'm going to tell you why you don't like it. You don't like it because probably God gave you a dream that you did nothing with. And you didn't pursue. And you didn't, you didn't discipline yourself to chase after it. And you, you, you jarred it, you bottled it up, and you put it on the top shelf for later. And it's been collecting dust for years. But then someone with this brand new uh, passion for Jesus or passion for this dream that he's given them has come your way and they're so excited about it. And instead of looking at it with a helpful eye of, oh, that's so amazing, you look at it with the eyes of regret because you didn't do what you should have done. And that dream stays up on that top shelf. And every time someone comes and talks about it, it reminds you of your inner adequacy to chase after what God has given you and therefore you don't like it. Joseph's brothers are no different. They don't like it. He's favoured. He's got the awesome Technicolor coat. We, we can at least, you know, sympathise with them when we some, see someone dressed way better than us. Everyone's been like, how do they get such a nice clothes? <coughs> Verse 9 says this, Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream. He's like a, a sucker for punishment here. He said, the, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his, fathers as well, his father as well as his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is this, he asked. Will your mother and I and all your brothers actually bow before you on the ground? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. You need to understand that when the Bible says that Joseph had a dream, he didn't have a dream because he ate too much hummus last night and has just been sitting there and then he's gone to sleep, got the sweats and had a weird dream. That's not what's happened here. What we're hearing from the, the author here is that not that Joseph had a dream, but that God had sent him a dream. This is important because if Joseph just had a dream, like, oh, that's a nice dream, crazy dream, guys, it would have been different, but he was explaining it to them that it had divine purpose. It had been given to him. This dream was not his own, but sent to him. That's what it means when they say dreams in the Old Testament. They're not talking about crazy food dreams. They're talking about something given to them by God. Who here has been given a dream by God? Something inside of you, right? You can't escape it. Anyone here who has ever encountered God and he's given you a dream, like it or not, it's implanted on your heart. And it's inescapable. And every time you ignore it, you might bury it deep, that's fine. But then you're in the presence of God and the floodwaters come and then that corpse rises and you're like, yuck, it's back again. <laughs> you're like, I should dig it deeper next time. That's our response. Oh, sure, six feet, man, six feet, not two. Watched enough CSI. 
We've been given dreams. We've been given visions. And we bury it because usually what's happened is that we've encountered people that have not agreed with them, not liked them, or been jealous about it. And so they've spoken doubt or they've spoken some sort of negative identity over it. And you just, you know, and it doesn't work out the way you want it to work out. And so you just shelve it. You just bury it. And then every time you hear somebody and it feeds that cycle, and that's what the enemy loves, that it feeds that cycle of people who can't reach their dreams that are helping others not reach their dreams. <laughs> it's just a great cycle of pain. But the church should be the incubator of the greatest minds. It should be the incubator of the greatest innovators. It should be the incubator of the greatest ideas because we have contact with the creator of heaven and earth. So when he's giving us dreams, we should be celebrating them. We should be feeding them. We should be empowering and supporting them, not tearing them down. But this is what we do because we don't remain helpful to ourselves, so we shelve it, and we won't remain helpful to others because we can't deal with their passion. And so we become destructive and passive in aggressive ways and we all pretend that it's okay, but it's not. I don't want to be a church that has got a mask on of health, but really inside is decay and toxic, where you wouldn't plant anything, let alone someone's personal dream for their life story. Who would want to do that? You've got to remain helpful. So Joseph quickly learns that it's not a great idea to share with certain people. You've got to know who to share with. You've got to have those people in your life. And I hope as a church we become a church that is trusted and respected because we're a great incubator of godly dreams and visions on people's lives so that we could be trusted with stuff. But you need to know that not every place you're going to go, not every person you speak to needs to hear your dream, not because it's a bad dream, because it's not necessarily safe for you to share it. Just no seasons. No seasons. You don't tell people that you're pregnant within the first 12 weeks. You can, and I know we do, but usually we don't, right? It's a very intimate moment. You've got to get through certain things, and anyone who's had a child would know that can often be an exciting but scary few months. All of pregnancy is, and you wait, and it's the same thing. A dream is like a pregnant thought, a pregnant gift that's about to come. You're about to birth something. You've got to know when to share it and who to share it with. That's the concept here. And so Joseph learns the hard way that his brothers aren't the best people to share it with. Now, don't get me wrong. He shares it with them with a little bit of a cocky attitude. Like, he's not, he's not tactful about it. Like, you can just imagine, like, he just kicks his bedroom door open. He's like, hey, suckers, guess what? <laughs> I know you've been working all morning while I have my nice sleep. I got a dream. But not like a Martin Luther dream, like a, like a you're going to bow to me dream. <laughs> Imagine that. You'd be upset. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say his brothers were terrible people, but obviously they carried hurts and pains of themselves. And obviously he wasn't wise about how he shared what God was saying. Genesis 37, I want you to know, to remain helpful, you need to learn to remain helpful through rejection. You know, we often create this narrative that we can only remain helpful when everything's going our way. But the first thing that we encounter that really hurts us as human beings is rejection. It happens in the garden. When we ate the fruit and when we sinned and we fell out of the glory, what was happened? We were rejected from the garden. That was, that was because of our actions, we felt rejection. And it's the first thing that we need to learn to get through. We need to remain helpful in rejection. You're going to feel it in your life one way or another. You might go through seasons of no rejection and then you might go through seasons of continual rejection. But at the end of the day, you need to learn to remain helpful in it for your sake 
Honestly, for your sake, you need to remain helpful in it. We're going to read here. Genesis 37, 18 to 28 says this. Then Joseph saw his, uh, Joseph's brothers saw him coming. They recognized him from a distance because he was wearing that epic coat. And he approached and they made plans to kill him. You know you're in trouble when your own family wants to kill you. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Nothing but a dreamer. Bit of super tramp there. Come on, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cysteines or, or wells. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Wow. He must have really ticked them off. But when Reuben heard of the scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. He says, let's not kill him. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him down that empty well here in the wilderness. Then he will die without us laying our hands on him. Yeah, that's a little bit better. Come on. Let's just let him die. But the Bible says Reuben was saying this because he wanted to rescue Joseph and take him back to his father. This tells us that there's obviously a group mentality going on here. That, that let's kill him. Mm, I don't want to be rejected by you guys, but let's not kill him. And then I'll secretly save him. Who knows that that's how we operate sometimes in the, in the public. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to secretly tell you about the gospel when no one's around. I'm going to bring you back to the Father. Yeah, that's my plan. Yeah, I know, you're in the well right now. I'll be back, I promise you. <laughs> when Joseph uh, arrived, his brothers ripped off his beautiful robe he was wearing. They loved to tear up the favour. And then they grabbed him and threw him into the well. Now the well was empty and there was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming towards them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum and balm and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's just sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our flesh and, uh, and blood. He's our brother. So they agreed. And so when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the well and sold him for 21 pe or 20 pieces of silver and the traders took him to Egypt. What I find interesting here is that though Joseph's in the well, he knows they're scheming. They know, he knows something's happening. And within moments, he knows that he's about to feel the greatest rejection anyone could feel, and that is those who are meant to love you above all, who will love you for your faults and all your problems, your family, his family, his brothers, were going to go from what was meant to be his protectors to his betrayers. Tell me, if that's not rejection, I don't know what is. Because though he had these dreams and though he might have been arrogant about it, I don't think at any point he thought that they wanted to kill him. I don't think at any point he thought that they were going to sell him into slavery. See, rejection will and can lead us to the wrong places in our life. It can empower unhealthy habits and unhealthy attitudes and unhealthy attributes and unhealthy actions. That's what rejection can do. So if we buy into rejection, if we allow re rejection to begin to dictate to us how we deal with things, maybe somebody hurt you, maybe someone betrayed you, maybe your family didn't think much of what you were going to become in your life, maybe you chose to take their words a particular way and therefore cause the rejection yourself. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you can't sustain your life on the back of rejection. You've got to remain helpful and begin to work through it. 
You can't allow these attitudes to be empowered, these attributes or actions to be empowered. They've only come to rob you and they will rob you day in, day out. They'll take your joy. They'll take your peace. They'll take any form of authority you thought you had. They'll rob you of your identity. They'll speak words of doubt into your life. They will plant seeds of cyclica. Cyclica, is that a word? Cyclica. Someone help me out here. Thank you. Yeah, Mars bar for you later. <laughs> Habits. I need to find a Mars bar. Anyone got a Mars bar? <laughs> I don't really like them as Snickers. All right, there you go. You've got to to understand that we've got to get through rejection with a sweet spirit with God. A sweet spirit. Not a rough, rugged, broken spirit. A sweet, you've got to remain sweet about it. I know it sounds, well, I've just been rejected. Yeah, so was he. Oh, I've just been let down. So was he. I've been robbed. So was he. I feel like I've been beaten and maybe I was physically beaten. Yes, so was he. Not so that we could be like, stop being poor as you, but realize that he went through everything we went through so that we could be empowered to go through it ourselves. That we'd not just survive life, but we would thrive in it. So how do we do this? And, and I really do believe that Joseph gets through and he remains helpful through his rejections, through my next point. He remains helpful in these seasons through simply following the principles of God. This is what he does. See, Joseph is sold by, Ish- uh, by the Ishmaelites after he, he's sold to the Ishmaelites. He's then resold in Egypt to Potiphar's house. And now Potiphar is a rich, influential businessman in Egypt. Right now, we know that Joseph is around 17 years old. Joseph should be on TikTok right now. He should have his phone and showing everyone his awesome abs, right? Like weird videos. I don't know why people watch them. But instead, if he was to do TikTok, he's probably getting dragged along behind a stinky camel. TikTok that bad boy. He should be disheartened. He should be completely disillusioned by what is happening to him. But if we look at Scripture and what it says, this is not what's happening with Joseph. In Genesis 39, it says this, verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. Isn't it incredible that though he is in slavery when he shouldn't be, he serves what's ahead of him with helpfulness. He doesn't, the Bible doesn't say he spends his time trying to figure out how to escape. It doesn't tell us that he spends his time complaining. The Bible says that the Lord is with him and that he just puts his hand to the plow with helpfulness in serving God in that situation. How many of us here can actually say that we're faithful in serving God when we're in situations we don't feel are just. Where we feel like we've been let down. Where we're in a position because of no fault of our own. And then we spend all this time thinking, well, God, we claim the scriptures, right? God is a just God. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You get me out of here right now. How dare the thousand will fall to the right hand and I'm going to get you. And, and we start like claiming all this script. Fear not, I'm going to. And it's just really, it's just angriness 
It's frustration. But God's saying, wait, wait a minute. Are you willing to submit to me and let me be with you and let me begin to work in and through your season? Stop trying to run, constantly try to escape hardship. That's the Western problem, isn't it? Everything we do, every innovation, every great idea is how can we make life less hard? How can we make it more easy, more comfortable, less meaningful? God's put you, no matter what season you're in, to be the head and not the tail. And that doesn't mean you're going to be in charge necessarily. It just means you're going to be the most influential. Why? Because he is with you. He is with you. Holiness is its most potent uh, self when it's found in the presence of pure evil. You've got to understand that. Jesus came and did not hang out with those that considered themselves righteous. He found the most darkest places to present his holiness so that he would have the most awesome effect on those around him. Don't run from your hardship. It's a pretty interesting story that takes place here because Potiphar sees the blessing on his life and gives Joseph so much prominent rule in running his house. Potiphar notices Joseph. That's awesome. But Potiphar's wife also noticed Joseph. A little bit of a cougar problem takes on happen here. We're going to read about it. First cougar story in the Bible. <laughs> she tries and fails to pick up, uh, pick up Joseph as like a side lover. Let's read about this in Genesis 39 verse 10. It says, She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. He kept out of her way as much as possible. Poor young guy. He's just like, I've got to hide. Potiphar's wife, quick, hide behind this pillar. One day, however, no one else was around when he went to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and that he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard my screams, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home, and she told him the very same story. The Hebrew slave that you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, but when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious, as he should have been, when he heard his wife's story about Joseph and, tre- and how he had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held and there he remained. What's interesting about this is that what I find most like impacting is that Joseph would have known. Let's, I'm just going to like break it down for you. Potiphar's wife wouldn't have been at, like, she would have been something to look at, right? You're like, how do you know that? Because rich guys back in these times, they didn't settle just for anything. They would send out their servants to find multiples and out of those multiples they would then figure out which one was the best looking and then the best looking it's it's almost like you know miss universe would take place just for this this guy now they might not look uh, what we consider attractive today but for back in that day you know smoking hot let's just say better than a blunt stick to the eye right so we can agree on that Joseph, I don't believe Joseph is fleeing from her because he thinks she's unattractive. 
I think he's had this revelation that the principles of God are more important than what we see as temptations. The Bible says that he tries as much as possible to, uh, to avoid her, to avoid the situation. But eventually, there's no avoiding it. A decision has to be made. And he remains helpful to himself. It requires him to flee from what we know is an unhealthy, compromising situation. See, I think he would have known from the moment she started to set eyes on him that he was in some sort of trouble. As a slave, he was not going to survive this. That at some point, he's going to have to make a decision that there was a trap being formed. I know in my own life, and you could probably attest to it, to it into your own life, that when we're found in problems or temptations, somehow we rewrite the narrative to make it sound like God is trying to ask us to stay in the trap. Pastor Ben, I'm going to go to the nightclubs. I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm not going to drink. I might preach him a little bit with how I swing my booty. But that's all. I'm going to preach Jesus. And then weeks later, Pastor Ben, something terrible happened. I'm like, what happened? Well, you know, I'm like the night, the nightclub one. Is that what happened? Took a chopstick to a gunfight? Good job. We try to take the narrative and we try to create it as if God has meaning for us to live in a cesspool. And we try to, we try to excuse our behavior or our desires to give into temptation by somehow that God is found in that failure. And that we're, we're just writing our testimony. So then when we get up in front of people, it's powerful because we showed everyone how we got it wrong and how good God is. You don't need to help your testimony in this way. Joseph knows this, and this is what I want you to understand. Joseph makes the decision to flee. Why? Because he decides that he's going to protect the principles that have been given to him by God over protecting the position given to him by men. That's what he decided. He knew the moment he ran out of that room, he was not coming back. He knew the moment he ran out of that room, he's probably in big trouble. But he didn't allow the narrative to say, well, God, I don't want to be in big trouble. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to be accused. I'm just going to do this right now, and I know you're going to forgive me. Well, God, I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be judged because I won't sleep around. But you know what? I'll just sleep around this one time, and it'll hurt, I know. But you'll forgive me, and it'll be fine. Who knows that that narrative doesn't work? That's an unhealthy narrative. We do it all the time. And so he runs. He says, you know what? The principles of God are more helpful to me. I'm going to remain helpful to myself by pursuing what God has given me over what man has given me. Your position, your title that man gives you is temporary. Your identity that God has given you, the authority that God wants to give you, the life that's in you, that's eternal. Why would you chase after the temporary at the cost of the eternal? You wouldn't, but we do. Why? Because we don't remain helpful. We don't think things through. We're not taking initiative. We want to write a narrative that's not a healthy narrative in the hope that grace will save us, and it will. But grace was never meant to be preached like some sort of prosperity gospel, a license to do whatever you want. Grace was always designed to transform you from out of death into life. That's what grace was meant for, not so that you could remain a slave and come and get your holy water moment every week because you're guilty. That's not, that's not the power of grace. There's, there's, there's grace for you if that's how you want to behave. But there's no life there. There's no power there. There's no transformation there. There's no change. 
We said this in Live Like You Mean It series, that Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you more to see you change. This is what Joseph understands. This is what he's picking up. He's like, I've got to run. The Bible says that he is thrown into prison. Can I tell you right now, if you have a principle in your life, it needs to be tested. Because a principle before it's tested is just a, a, just a theory. Principles need to be tested so that they can be implanted into your core character. So, for instance, I had a friend and she uh, would constantly complain about other females wearing like swimsuits, bikinis to the beach when in Australia. <sighs> so ungodly. Also, she's telling a teenage boy. I, I don't think I was going to agree with her at that time. But, but anyway, she's, I'm like, she would complain about this stuff. And to, to be honest, I think a lot of it had to do with how she saw herself. Because she was, she was on the larger side and she didn't feel like she could wear a bikini. And therefore, her principle was like, no, that's, that's an ungodly principle. But then she lost weight and she got healthy. And all of a sudden, guess who wore a bikini? I was like, where's the principle? See, the principle existed when it was untested. But then when it got tested, it no longer existed, which tells me it wasn't a principle at all, but an insecurity. Principles in your life need to be tested. Don't be afraid of the test. Don't be afraid of the fire. The Bible says it purifies us. All that rotten stuff will get scraped, uh, scraped off the top and you'll get that pure 24 karat gold. That's what you want. That fire, that testing, the persecution to come, it's good. We see here that Joseph is thrown into prison. He's accused of being a rapist under false accusations. He's in prison because someone falsely accused him and that person who falsely accused him only was able to do that because his family unlovingly sold him into slavery. See the chain of events here? He's still in the battle of rejection. He's still in the battle of persecution. And the Bible says that he does something incredible. See, like the rest of us, by this point, let's be honest, we all got to admit, Joseph has a good reason to be a little bit mad with God. Just a little bit annoyed, maybe. Man, I've talked about this all the time. Someone eats too loud. I think I was madder than Joseph. <laughs> Just hear mouth noises, I get angry. Oh, this guy is going through hell. It's interesting what the Bible says here in Genesis 39. Verse 21 says this, But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite within the prison and with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all other prisoners and everything that was happening in the prison. The warden had no other worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused him in everything to succeed. I love the scripture. It's so clear that God does not leave us in our time of need. He is so faithful. He's so loving that he would never leave us. And I, I, I find it hard to believe that in a prison place that Joseph all of a sudden just found God's love. And that's what happens here is that it doesn't say that he finds God's love. It says God showed him his faithful love. God bridged the gap. God made the effort. God let Joseph know he wasn't alone. I think God constantly is reaching out to show us that we're not alone that he's faithful, that he's good, that he's for us and not against us, that he's giving us what we need to get through what's ahead of us. I don't think that it's a lack of him trying to show us. 
I honestly believe it's a lack of us trying to hear it or see it. That we spend so much time explaining to the God of heaven and earth that sees all things what annoys us, frustrates us or hurts us and not enough time just chasing him. Asking him to redefine the undefinable, the problems in our life. But Joseph knows this and God says, I'm with you, bro. I got you. You're in prison. But nothing changes. He's still in prison. The only thing that changes is the Bible says, once again, Joseph is favoured. And that he's in charge of the prison after a while. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. See, Joseph, knowing that he's loved and that he's favoured by God, that he's chosen even in the prison cell to be an influence, he remains helpful And through that helpfulness, he finds himself once again in charge. But something interesting happens in the prison. And if you don't know this story, this is where it gets really juicy. Two of his prison mates, and this is my next point, you've got to remain helpful so that you can help others. Don't forget that you've got to be helpful to help others. Don't be selfish with your helpfulness. I'm not up here preaching, hey, remain helpful, because if you remain helpful, you can trick everybody. Get whatever you want. It's not what I'm saying. You've got to remain helpful, one to yourself, and then when it's the whole concept of put the, the oxygen mask on your face first so that you could then put it on others. It's the same sense. You need to learn to remain helpful to what God's doing in your life so that he can begin to trust you in helping others. We see here in chapter 40 that sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master and Pharaoh became angry. They must have made mouth noises with these two officials. He put them in a prison where Joseph was and in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph who looked after them. And while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they looked both very upset. Why do you guys look so worried today? He asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night and no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Come on, Joseph. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. Boom. I love that. So confident that God's with him. Hey, that's God's business. But tell me it. What is he saying? God's with me. I got this. He's on me. He's he's living in and through me. And then... He interprets the first dream. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. My dream is this. I saw a grapevine in, front, in front of me and the vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes and I was holding Pharaoh's wine in my cup in my hand so I took a cluster of grapes and I squeezed the juice into the cup then I placed it, the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph replied. The three branches represent three days and within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you into your position as his chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so that he might let me out of this place. I love that cry. Remember me. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison. But I did nothing to deserve it. That cupbearer is like, wow, this is going to be huge. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be back to where I belong. And he's pumped. 
But then hear the next one. So the, the chief baker's listening to this and he's like, oh yes, come on. Because the first dream had such a positive interpretation, he comes to Joseph. He said, I had a dream too. And in my dream, there was three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. The top basket contained all kinds of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. Joseph, without skipping a beat, just says this. This is what your dream means. The, the three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, yes, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. But wait, there's more. The birds will come and peck away at your flesh. I sort of love Joseph. Doesn't skip a beat. Do you know why he doesn't? He just says, this is God's business, not my business. He says, don't forget me. It's a rough day in office for the baker. But, you know, the Bible says Pharaoh's birthday came three days later and he appeared, sorry, he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff and he summons both the cupbearer and the baker to join them when he restored the cupbearer to his former position so he could again give Pharaoh his cup. But for the baker, he impaled him, just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted the dream. Pharaoh's cupbearer, this is the one that everything came right for. However, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. I want to take two thoughts and two perspectives of this sentence. One, when we help people, yes, we're hoping that this leads to things, but it shouldn't be what motivates you. Bible says that Joseph still interpreted the dream. He said, hey, if you can, help me. Still interprets the dream. There's no exchange. He's given it to him freely. He's being helpful freely. When we help people, we should be free with our help. Give it to them freely. Don't, uh, don't give conditions. Just be a helpful person. The other thing is, is that when God turns up in your life and when you're in success and things are going right, don't forget those who helped you. Like the cupbearer forgot Joseph. Remember who helped you. Even when it's hard to remember them. Even when it's hard to help them. You've got to. You've got to honour those people that honoured you first. You've got to honour those people that invested into you first. They've, they've got to have a godly return. Church, would you stand with me this morning? We're going to shoot through this last bit here, but last thing I want you to know is that you need to remain helpful for your inheritance. I'm going to paraphrase this, but eventually what happens is, is a while after the cupbearer is restored, Pharaoh keeps having these dreams and no one in the land, none of his officials can interpret the dream. And the dreams are essentially this. Skinny cows rise up and eat the fat cows and the skinny bundles of grain rise up and eat the healthy bundles of grain. He keeps having these dreams. And then after a while, the cupbearer who's overhearing these conversations like has an aha moment. Ah, I remember a guy in the prison. He can interpret your dreams. He interpreted mine and the dead guys and they were right. And so they bring Joseph up and Joseph says the same thing. Pharaoh interpreting dreams is God's business. Tell me what they are. And he interprets them. And this is what I find incredible. He interprets that 
there's going to be seven years of abundance in the land. And then there's going to be seven years of extreme harsh famine. Pharaoh asks Joseph, not his other officials, he asks Joseph, what should we do to plan? This is why I want you to really pay attention here. He asked Joseph how to plan, how to save a nation, the guy that's just come out of prison. Why? Because when Joseph was in Potiphar's house, what was he? He was the head of that household. He ran the business. He ran that man's affairs. He knew what he was doing. He knew how to balance a budget. He knew how to, to organize people, how to mobilize people. And then when he got into prison, which we all hate those seasons, right? What did he learn into prison? How to treat people well how to motivate the lowest of people, how to keep them safe, how to run a prison. So when that he got in front of Pharaoh, the very seasons that we would have despised, the very seasons we would have hated, the very seasons we saw we couldn't see God in, were the very seasons that qualified him to make judgment on something and influence the greatest ruler in the known world. Think about that. His slavery and his imprisonment led to his influence. Your hardship, your problems, your seasons of hurt, pain, rejections, things that you think are enslaving you, things that think that are keeping you captive. There is God in those moments. He's teaching you in those moments. He's shaping you in those moments. He's stretching your capacity in those moments. He's giving you meaning and identity and substance and something greater. He's giving you life that can't be extinguished. He's making you a world changer. You just got to get through it. You've just got to get through it. You've got to be somebody who's alive, who's taken the time. You're no longer this infant. You're mature. You spend time on the streets. You know how the world operates. You've taken a hit and you got back up. You're strong. You're no longer made from glass. You're a solid rock. Under that furnace, you've made something complete. Can I tell you right now? If you're helpful to yourself, if you're helpful to others in your workplace, even if it's a toxic workplace, God will honor, favor, and he'll make you the catalyst for change in that place. If you love somebody well, even if they don't love you, you know, I, I subscribe to the fact that kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. What are you doing to remain helpful in your life? Stop looking around and asking God to evacuate out of your situation and start looking around and ask God to invade your situation, to make a difference, to change the world you're living in. Stop being a trophy on the wall of godly success and become an instrument of redemption. Step down of your pedestal, get your hands in the dirt and find some gold in the hardship that you're in so that God can trust you with more and give you more, that he can give you more influence, more authority, he can empower you. He doesn't care your creed, your race, your gender. He doesn't care your age right now. All he's looking at is your heart and your willingness to be helpful. Church, as we go back into worship, this is your opportunity to go, God, help me be helpful. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, that I would be that instrument of redemption to this hurting world. Stop making it about me, and may I make it more about you, Lord. Church, are you ready? Come on. Thank you, worship team. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.